We're in a series on the book of Daniel. If you would turn your Bibles, Daniel chapter five. I'm gonna read the first 10 verses of this chapter. And in it, we're going to hear a story together. And I think it'd be better if you just hear it from the author, from the prophet Daniel, and then we'll unpack it together. Daniel chapter five, verse one says this. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines, they did. They drank from them. They drank wine, and they praised the gods, little g, of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and everyone said, how much wine have we had? It's it's in my notes. (laughs) And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then I just love this description. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together and yours would as well if a hand came down and began writing on the wall in the room. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. I bet he did. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed yet again and his lords were perplexed. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, the handwriting is on the wall, but if it's ever been used anywhere around you, including by people who don't follow Jesus, they are referring to a story in the Bible. Daniel chapter five, the handwriting is on the wall. This idiom is tend to mean that there is impending doom, that the enemy is at the gate, is a prominent and clear indication of impending failure or disaster. But when you see the handwriting on the wall, it is your opportunity to stop, to turn around and to change direction. These are the dashboard warning moments in life. And oftentimes God in his mercy, he doesn't just give us one warning, but he gives us multiple opportunities to bring ourselves in alignment with his will for his glory and for our good. Now, this book that we've been studying for the last several weeks, the book of Daniel is, of course, tucked into the Old Testament, the first 39 books of the Bible, of the 66 books that are there. And you need to know something about this book as we get into the story. There was a a long time where this book was actually challenged because of Daniel chapter 5. Daniel has proven to be one of the most accurate books of history uh, in all of literature, but yet 
Chapter 5, no one was able to verify until really in the last 50 to 75 years, in the late 40s, as Israel became an independent nation and people could really go and do all kinds of archaeological studies and even find things over near ancient Babylon, Iraq, and all that, they began to find references to this king named Belshazzar. And while we're at it, I'll just tell you, the book of Daniel as a whole, there are more than 10,000 fragments that have been found throughout history by archaeologists referring back and giving validity to this book. God's word is not just inspired, but it's, it's valid and it can be trusted. And chapter five opens up with King Belshazzar. Now you need to understand a little bit of history about this guy and, and stay with me because this is going somewhere. Now, it has been 23 years since Terrence spoke two weeks ago, all right? It has been 23 years since the end of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years, and I don't know if you heard Terrence's message a couple weeks ago, but Nebuchadnezzar spent the last seven of them grazing like an animal out in the field, and then he died. Now, he is followed by a son, who reigns for just a short period of time, actually for just two years, and then the son is assassinated by his brother-in-law. I don't know how many of you have a brother-in-law, but keep an eye on that guy just for at the family reunion later next week, all right? His brother-in-law reigned for, for four years, and we don't know everything about this guy, but we do know from the book of Jeremiah, he may not have been all bad, because he helped release Jeremiah from prison. Now he is succeeded by a son. After he dies, he is succeeded by a son who is uh, not a toddler, but he's a young boy when he becomes king. And a group of people who would rather have the throne for themselves and take it for themselves and bring it out of this line now, they actually club this little boy, they kill him and they take the throne. They take the throne and they appoint a guy named Nabonidus. Nabonidus is now king of Babylon. He is not related to Nebuchadnezzar. So he marries one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows and then adopts one of his sons. The son that he adopts is Belshazzar. Now, interestingly about Nabonidus and Belshazzar, Nabonidus appoints Belshazzar to be king before he dies. This is really unusual. I mean, he's already adopted him as son. Normally you wait until you die and then the boy would be king. But why would he do that? Because King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire has been conquering the world at a rapid rate and now he is very near to conquering Babylon. So Nabonidus basically says to Belshazzar, hey, guess what? Good news. You're king. You're in charge. Peace out. I'm out of here. And he puts himself in exile. And then Cyrus kills him while he's in exile. But now the Medo-Persian army of the great King Cyrus that has been conquering the world, they are at the gates of Babylon. They are ready to conquer And what is Belshazzar doing? He's throwing a party. I mean, he is having a massive 
party. It says that he had invited a thousand of his lords. And in archaeology in Babylon, they have actually uncovered a banquet hall that would be about half as wide as this room and a little bit longer. And so if all of those thousand people had brought a guest and they all had servants, you're talking about a couple thousand people or more in about a space half as big as this room. They are packed in here. They are partying. They are celebrating. They are so drunk they can't see straight. And then there's the enemies at the gate. Then they take it a step further. They pull all of the vessels out of the temple that was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, pulled out of the temple in Jerusalem, and they bring them and they even begin to drink wine from them. And at this point, God has had enough. And then a hand, the scriptures say sent from God, not God's hand, but a hand sent from God begins to write on the wall and no one understands the writing. He goes pale, his limbs get weak, his knees start to knock together. It's such a great description of what's happening. And then the queen, one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, seemingly perhaps Belshazzar's mom, says, wait, Something like this has happened before. I remember something like this happening before. There was a guy. There was a guy who was able to tell of the king's dream, even when the king didn't tell everybody what the dream was. He was able to tell the dream and the meaning. You need to go get that guy. He will know. And so in verse 13, they go get Daniel. And it says, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. You are that Daniel. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? There are remarkable similarities to Daniel chapter two. And here's what I want you to catch from all the history, from everything that we've been looking at even over the last couple of minutes. They know the stories They know what God has done and the handwriting is on the wall. But listen to this and and hear me. There are always signs before the handwriting is on the wall. There are always signs. There are always moments of caution before the handwriting is on the wall. The question is, what do you do when you see the signs? I mean, when you see the warning sign, are you the kind of person who pays attention to it or do you ignore it? Because it's not just enough to see it and recognize it. You have to pay attention to do what it says, or in some cases, not do what it says. So what kind of person are you? What do you do when you see the signs? Let's test it. Let's see what you would do when you see the signs. Have a look at this first one. Please don't feed fingers to the animals. All right, now you've said this to like your three-year-old or your four-year-old at some point to a small child. You didn't say don't feed the crackers, don't feed the goldfish. You said don't feed your fingers. That means don't put your fingers through the fence. Are you paying attention to the sign or are you the kind of person that's gonna put your finger through one of these things in the fence and just see if they can't get to me from here, we're, we're gonna be fine. All right, let's look at the next one. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Now, what do you do when you see this sign? 
I know exactly what some of you would do. You know, it didn't look sharp. The edges are round on that thing. So you're going to go put your finger along the edges of that sign and you're just going to see what happens. The person who made the sign knows that you're going to do this. And so they said, do not touch the edges of this sign. And for those of you that can't read the bottom line, you're over the age of 40. It says also the bridge is out ahead. So you have to pay close attention when you read these things. All right, let's look at the next one. No diving. I think that's important. I just feel like it should be there. I know the government puts a lot of signs on things that they shouldn't, but this is, you know, that's good advice. I don't care who you are. All right, let's look at, let's look at the next one. I love this. Danger. If you fall in the pond, you will be boiled. All right. Now, I am very thankful for the person who wrote this sign. I don't know what country it's in, but I'm glad they took the time to do it in English or I would have messed this up. Now, some of you, I know exactly what goes in your head. You're parked in the parking lot and you're thinking to yourself, what have I got in the car that might boil if we threw it in there? Let's be honest, right? Is there anything that we could do? Let's just test it. How hot is the water? Caution, you will be boiled. Here's one more. Here's the deal. Two rentals. Some of you are going to do this this summer, but here's the thing. You are not allowed to do anything that begins with the words, hey, y'all, watch this. Now, I want to add something to this. The word y'all is in this, which means this was made for young men from Georgia. All right. Some of you are in the room. All right. There's something else that we're going to do immediately. A week from tomorrow, we are leaving with more than 800 students to go to Daytona Beach. We are adding this to the manual. No one is allowed to do anything that says, hey, y'all watch this. All right. All the parents are clapping. All the students said, you just dared me and something's going to happen. All right. So here we go. The last sign is not so much of a warning. It's more of an encouragement. And I saw it and I thought I should share it. So everybody stop. Hammer time. For some of you, the word caution me, I don't know who your driver's ad instructor was, but when you see a yellow light, you don't think slow down. You think speed up. You know who you are. But here's what I want you to understand. You will always see the signs before the handwriting is on the wall. You will have the opportunity for course correction if you pay attention, yet too many people ignore the signs. Have you ever driven around a road close sign? You ever done that? Be honest. I mean, I have sent my wife into several moments of godly disagreement with me when I have done this, all right? I see the road closed sign and I'm thinking, yeah, but I don't know why it's closed. And I can see from here that we're going to be okay. And so I have several times driven around a road closed sign just to see what's on the other side. One time in particular, I remember speeding up and I nearly sent us off, not a cliff, but a ledge that may as well, may as well have been a cliff. You know who you are. Too many people think they are okay until they actually drop off the cliff. But it's never the case. And Belshazzar had signs long before the handwriting was on the wall. I mean, Terrence again shared this story a couple weeks ago. Nebuchadnezzar was given a dream. Before Belshazzar, there was Nebuchadnezzar. He was given a dream. He was told what it meant. 
And given the opportunity to change his ways, to humble himself, to show mercy to the oppressed, he refused. And let me just remind you what happened from Daniel 4.33. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Now, I don't know what kind of crazy things your dad or your grandpa has done, but I can guarantee you that if they ended up out in a field eating grass for seven years, you would know the story. Belshazzar has got to know that story. There will be signs. We're talking about warnings or cautions. There will be signs long before the handwriting is on the wall, but it goes back further than that. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brian and I, we divided up Daniel chapter two. I took the first half, he took the second half. And Pastor Brian, the second half, gives us the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel shared with him. And part of that dream, in so many words, it was prophesied that the Medo-Persian empire that is currently surrounding the city on the night of this party with Belshazzar is going to destroy the city and take the kingdom out of their hands. Don't you think he would know this? All of these monarchs, they are paranoid people because they all have brothers-in-law trying to kill them. They all have someone who's trying to take them out. They all have someone who wants the throne. They are paranoid people. He would know about this prophecy. He's bound to know this could be what that whole dream was about. There were signs long before the handwriting was on the wall. But hear this now. God doesn't put signs out so that he can say, I told you so. Rather, they are acts of mercy. The checks in our spirit that we get from the spirit of God or the things that we read in scripture, the the wise counsel from other people, the, the signs that come into our lives that try to stop us in our tracks and they turn us around. They're not acts of condemnation. They are acts of mercy. So here's the question. Are you ignoring any signs? In any area of your life, are you ignoring any signs? When you go to the doctor, someone checks your blood pressure, your blood sugar, your cholesterol, and the numbers tell you that something needs to change. Stop being defensive. These are not moments of condemnation from your doctor to you. They are acts of mercy. Your credit card statement is an act of mercy telling you something may need to change. You may walk out of the doctor's office and say, I'm fine. You might keep spending money and say, I'm fine. Until when? Too many people act like they're fine until we actually get off the cliff. How about that business proposal or that investment idea? And you've passed it around with a few friends and you, you're taking this, this opportunity to get wise counsel and all the wise counsel that God has put in your path is telling you one thing and they've even said, have you prayed about it? And you just continue to, to move on anyway. Proverbs chapter 19 says, listen to advice, accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of man, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. Are you ignoring the signs? Are you reading the signs? Are you going right past them? In fact, there are countless scriptures for just the handful of things that we're talking about today and a ton of, others, of, of other subjects. The scriptures don't just tell us about awesome things that happen, great conquests, great victories. 
Rather, the scriptures tell us about failures and flaws of the hero of the faith. Why? They are acts of mercy to all who would come behind that God's word might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Are there any signs that you're just skipping over right now? That you're just going right by? Maybe it's an issue with the kids or the students in your home, your son or daughter. When they start having meaningful personal relationships with people who don't share the same values or morals that you do, don't center their lives and their families around the person, the risen Jesus Christ, are you going to ignore the sign? Are you going to intervene and make sure something changes? Don't be passive. God gave you those students, those kids as a stewardship. Don't withdraw. Don't ignore Be active in their life. Correction when done properly is not an act of condemnation. It's an act of love, of grace, and of mercy. For some of you that are single in the room, you're dating somebody right now, and all the warning signs are going off. I mean, the dashboard of your life is just going crazy. This is going nowhere. This person is not putting God at the center of their life. And you're not here to be their missionary while you're dating them. You're not here just to to point them to Jesus and that kind of relationship. And you need to get out of there before you go off the cliff. What about in your marriage? For some, sometimes there are these internal checks in our marriage that we need to pay attention to. What if you're attacked from within? And the two of you are avoiding communication around tough topics, neglecting to spend time together and allowing yourself to be distracted by any number of things. Which one of you is going to step up and say, it stops here. We got to get this right. What about when you're attacked from the outside? I mean, come on, all the warning signs went off when you received that look of flirtation and maybe even returned it to that other person. And you can convince yourself that everything is going to be okay as long as I don't drive off the cliff. In the meantime, God is trying to tell you, come on, stop, turn around. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 19 says this, do not quench the spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus, the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. Do not quench the spirit. How do you quench the spirit? Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. In other words, Pay attention to the things that God puts in your life. Don't ignore the signs. Rather, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And then now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. What guardrails are you putting up around yourself to protect yourself from sin? I see too many believers, followers of Jesus who have said, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to heaven. It's all right. I can let my guard down a little bit. I can, I can let in this influence that I know is not the best. I can let in this, this friendship, this choice this, that I know is not the best, but I'm going to be okay. I haven't driven off a cliff yet. It's going to be fine. Apostle Paul addresses this in Romans chapter six when he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for right living. For sin will have no dominion under you, so you are not under law, but under grace. What then? 
Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. We have to stop making decisions like our lives are not precious. Better yet, we have to stop living our lives as if we have not been bought with a price, but understanding a loving God sacrificed what was most important and valuable to him so that you would know that you are most important and valuable to him. What do you do when you see the signs? I wanna take just a moment and look at how Daniel 5 closes. I I hope that in your small group this week that you'll read all of Daniel 5. Some of the the dialogue there in the middle is is pretty spectacular. And, And some of what Daniel says to the king in the middle of this moment, he says to him, don't you know it was the God of heaven that put your father Nebuchadnezzar in place? Don't you know that? Don't you know that the almighty God made him powerful and allowed him to rule this massive kingdom? Don't you know that God gave him the opportunity to humble himself? Don't you know what happened? Daniel's basically saying, come on, didn't you see the signs? But I'll tell you about the handwriting on the wall, verse 24. He says, then from his presence, God's presence, a hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Tekel Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then this is odd to me. Then Belshazzar gave the command And Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. A proclamation was made about him that that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed. Now it's, it's fascinating to me that Belshazzar just kept going. If there had been some different kind of response, I believe Daniel would have written it down. But rather, he just moves forward with giving the title, giving the prestige, giving the riches, and just moving on. But hear me in this. The handwriting on the wall is not just a warning from God. Rather, it's a last-ditch effort to give mercy. Now, we know what happened. And so this is why the saying means what it does, that it's impending doom, that something awful is going to happen, and Belshazzar ultimately loses his life on this night. But I believe that the handwriting on the wall is one last dramatic gesture of God's mercy. See, recognizing your issues only works if you do something about it. And if Belshazzar had done something about his pride and his arrogance and his sin before God, I believe might be telling a different story today if he had responded differently. So what should have Belshazzar's response have been? What should our response be when God puts signs and warnings in our path. 
The Hebrew word for repentance is the word teshuva. It has two meanings. In fact, I believe it's the core idea behind Jesus' teaching of the gospel in the New Testament. And I'll show you that in, in just a moment. But first, teshuva means to turn around or to turn back. That's what repentance means. It means to turn around or to turn back. If you see a sign and you just stand there, then you're just stalled out. You're just, you're just stuck. But if you turn around or turn back, that means something has happened. It means in your mind, there's been a change. Your mind and your heart have changed about the direction that you're going in. In fact, I believe it's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he uses the Greek word metanoia for repentance. It's a word that actually means to change your mind, to change your mind in order to go in a new direction. It is in or- when you change your mind, then there has to be a moment of confession. If you were to pray a prayer in line with Repentance. if you were to confess to God in line with repentance, you would say something like, God, I have sinned. God, I have messed up. God, this is not going to happen again. I'm putting all of this aside. I'm throwing all of this away. I'm stopping where I am. I'm turning around. It is this deep acknowledgement inside your bones. And listen to this. For a follower of Jesus, this is not just about sin management but it's about any area of your life that has not been consecrated and set apart for the glory of God. But repentance, teshuva, doesn't just mean changing your mind. In the book of Joel, the prophet Joel is talking to the people of God and he says to them at a different point in history, there is an enemy coming. He actually says there are invaders on the way. Very soon they will be at the gate. There is impending doom in Joel chapter two. And here's what he says. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. Joel says, if you return to God now, our gracious God who is abounding in mercy, he will allow you to come back to himself. You see, repentance is not just about turning away and turning around, not just about changing your mind and turning around, but rather it is fully giving yourself in every area of your life over to the glory of God and to the work of God in your life. God never wants us to intentionally choose to wait until the last minute to cry out to him for mercy, but even at the last minute, he welcomes our return. See the thief on the cross. To repent is to change your mind and to turn to God. Matthew chapter four, verse 17, this is the core message of Jesus Christ, his core of his teaching. He says, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, stop what you're doing, stop where you're going, change your mind about the direction you are headed in and give God every area of your life. You see, God doesn't want us to compartmentalize areas of our lives. He doesn't see it that way. He doesn't see physical life, work life, financial life, dating life. He just sees our hearts that are either fully his or not. And in those areas that are not fully his, he says, stop, stop in your tracks. 
change your mind and turn around and come to me. Focus on me. Fix your eyes on me. I love this word, fix. It's a good Southern word, isn't it? Fixing. It's not just about what's happening in the kitchen. Fix your eyes. Five different times in the scriptures, we're challenged to fix ourselves in a given direction. Deuteronomy eleven 18, we're told to fix ourselves on God's word. Proverbs chapter four, we're told to gaze directly on the path that God has put before us, not to look to the right or to the left. Second Corinthians chapter four tells us to fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Hebrews chapter three tells us to fix our minds, to fix our thoughts on Jesus. And Hebrews 12 verse two says, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We need to fix our eyes on him. And for some of you today needs to be fixing day. Some of you are falling apart. Your marriages are falling apart. Your finances are falling apart. Your dating life is falling apart. Your, all, everything, it seems to be going haywire. And you keep telling yourself, I'm just gonna keep going this direction. We have not gone off the cliff yet. And Jesus is going, hey, 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 over here, fix your eyes on me. I've given you the signs. The signs are a cross. The signs are an empty grave. The signs are my word. The signs are the spirit that I've given to you. Fix your eyes, focus everything, and come in my direction in every area of your life. And no matter how far away you are, no matter how far away you are, no matter how deep, no matter how dark, no matter how heavy the chains are on your life, if it's an addiction issue, whatever the things are that you are dealing with, today can be fixing day. It can be fixing day. He didn't want you to wait till the last minute. He didn't want you to keep going that way, but today can be that day. And listen, it's not just about sin management. Jesus didn't die just so we could manage our sin life a little bit, but rather he died to give you victory. He died to give you a life bigger than yourself. He died so that you could live your life for his good and for his glory. And he says, promised us good along the way. But he came and he has given you vision and mission and calling in your life. And some of you are ignoring the things that God wants to do in your life because you're scared to death. You're stalled out. And Jesus has said, fix your eyes on me. I'm about to blow your mind. Come on. And you keep going that direction. You keep fixing your eyes on that cross and on that empty grave. And he's gonna tell you, keep going, keep going. You're gonna keep seeing signs. He's gonna keep reassuring you, keep going. Don't quit, don't stop, follow after me. Fix your eyes on me, keep fixing, keep fixing, keep fixing. And then one day you'll hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. If you fix your eyes in every area of your life on him, keep going. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Uh, If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, fix your eyes on Jesus. Loved you and gave his life for you. Today, if you would reach out to him and confess Jesus in a prayer, you can take that very first step of being a disciple of his. 
Jesus came, he died on the cross for your sins. Risen from the dead for you. You didn't take communion earlier because you said, I know I haven't believed in that. But in the last half an hour, the spirit of God, certainly not me, the spirit of God has drawn you and pulled you to himself. And you've said, today is the day where I'm gonna fix that. I'm gonna be a follower of Jesus. And so if you're here today and that needs to be you, would you just pray in your own words and reach out to him and say, God, I come before you right now, putting my faith, my trust, and my hope in your son that died for me and has risen from the dead for me. I give you my life. I give you my all. Help me as I go. If you're here today and you want to give your life to Christ or maybe you just did in that moment, maybe you still have questions. In the quiet of this moment, we want to connect with you on that. You can text the word follow to our number 77453. You can, if you need to look at the screen to do that, you can do that. They've put it up there. You can fill it out. Our prayer team will be here immediately after the service. You can come talk to them about it. Uh, But follower of Jesus, if you're here today and you've been ignoring the signs and God is using this message and this moment and his word to be a billboard in your life, would you please stop? Would you please repent of the way that you've been going or the way that you've been refusing to go? Would you turn around and give it all to him? Fix your eyes on him. We'd love to pray with you after the service. You can come down. Let me pray for you now. God, thank you so much that long before there's handwriting on the wall, there are always signs. So God, would you use this moment to draw people to yourself? May the lost be found. May those who have strayed get serious about discipleship, about areas of their life, God, that you want to redeem and you have redeemed. And God, there are people in this room, you have immeasurably more for them, yet they've stalled out. God, start. let's start them up. Pray by faith that everyone would start up and that you would use people in this body to go to the ends of the earth, change this community in our country. And we'll thank you for all that you're gonna do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.